Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, April 22nd, and it will begin airing on Sunday, April 25th. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going today, ladies? Happy Earth Day, everyone. Happy it, it is currently Earth Day at the time of recording, even though that will already be passed by airtime. Um, but just, you know, feeling those nature vibes today. Yes, I feel some type of way because I didn't get to actually spend some time outside. But Ah, uh, yes, well. <laughs> maybe I'll take the night walk. How are you, Jasmine? I'm doing okay. I was irritated that um, the days that I'm off, the weather was acting up. Like, it was not sunny. It wasn't warm. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy it's spring. Things are turning a corner eventually. Yes, yes. It snowed in Cincinnati last night, so I don't even know. It snowed up where my mother lives. She told me three (laughs) inches of snow, and I was like, what? Yeah. And she said, yeah, she had to warm her. Like, I guess the car she has now, what is it? Like, it's an auto starter, like, so she doesn't have to go into the car in the snow to warm it up. Like, she can do it remotely. So she was happy about that. And I'm like, damn, it's almost May. Right. Mother Earth is... um having some issues and rightfully so i mean we aren't the best people as humans sometimes with her but anyway happy earth day to everybody i hope you spend some time uh being happy about the earth and and loving on mother earth and everything she brings us uh this week we'll be discussing the local da's end of prosecution for sex workers some good news about climate change from the the climate change clock in union square a review of the Derek Chauvin case and the killing of Makia Bryant, and also the proposed hijab ban in France. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Emily, take it away. Uh, My pleasure. So uh, this is actually, we're sort of capping the show with good news today, which is um, pretty fun. Um, So the story comes from an April 21st New York Times article by Jonah E. Bromwich titled, Manhattan to Stop Prosecuting Prostitution, Part of Nationwide Shift. Um, I just want to note that the article, just like in the title, uses the word prostitution a lot. Um, I I know my preferred terminology is sex work. I believe that it might just, it's a legal legal term in a lot of ways. So that's why I'll be saying it a lot. Um, But I know that there is controversy over that. Uh, All right. So the article explains, quote, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office announced Wednesday that it would no longer prosecute prostitution and unlicensed massage, uh, putting the weight of one of the most high-profile law enforcement offices in the United States behind the growing movement to change the criminal justice system's approach to sex work. The District Attorney, Cyrus R. Vance Jr., asked a judge on Wednesday morning to dismiss 914 open cases involving prostitution and unlicensed massage, along with 5,080 cases in which the charge was loitering for the purposes of prostitution. Uh, The law that made the latter charge a crime, which had become known as walking while trans law, uh, was repealed by New York State in February, uh, which we also talked about on the show previously. Quote, many of the cases Mr. Vance moved to dismiss dated to the 1970s and 1980s, when New York waged a war against prostitution in an effort to clean up its image as a center of iniquity and vice. 
The article notes, quote, the office will continue to prosecute other crimes related to prostitution, including patronizing sex workers, promoting prostitution and sex trafficking, and said that its policy would not stop it from bringing other charges that stem from prostitution-related arrests. Uh, That means, in effect, that the office will continue to prosecute pimps and sex traffickers, as well as people who pay for sex, continuing to fight those who exploit or otherwise profit from prostitution without punishing the people who for decades have borne the brunt of law enforcement's attention. Manhattan follows Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx, whose own district attorneys began the process of dismissing prostitution-related cases earlier this year and joined cities like Baltimore and Philadelphia that are also declining to prosecute sex workers. Abigail Swenstein, who is an attorney with the Legal Aid Society's Exploitation Intervention Project, said that in the last 10 years, we've actually already seen a major drop in prosecutions of sex workers and that the new move, quote, would likely have reverberations for sex workers and trafficking survivors well outside of New York City and that it would make them feel less stigmatized. She commended the district attorney for having formulated the policy after talking to sex workers and others with relevant experience. Quote, Mr. Vance's office had been in the practice of dismissing prostitution cases after sending those charged to mandatory counseling sessions. Uh, Going forward, Mr. Vance's statement said such counseling sessions would be provided only on a voluntary basis. Uh, The movement to decriminalize sex work is not new, but there has been a growing grassroots push in recent years. The Times article highlights a turning point in 2019 when the Decrim NY coalition was formed, and which we've definitely talked about on this show before, maybe right in 2019 when it was happening. Uh, This move is awesome and groundbreaking and a hopeful step away from some of the major institutionalized practices that attack some of our society's most marginalized people. Um, So that is my local story for the week. Um, Really cool stuff happening. Um, I know this is a great move. I found it really interesting that they're explicitly leaving open the door for uh, prosecuting those who take advantage of sex workers. Um, I also thought it was interesting that they'll be prosecuting those who visit sex workers, um, not just traffic, uh, human traffickers. Uh, what are your thoughts, guys? I mean, I think it's good that they're no longer going to be prosecuted, or like, you know, the decision was made not to prosecute, but the next step should be like, it shouldn't even be an option to prosecute them. Yeah, those other clauses with the people connected um, definitely show that there's much more work to do. But this, I think these like change of laws that we've been experiencing and just like these uh, edits, if you will, because I'm not calling anything reform to the whole shit is broken down. But these edits to the way that we interpret what these laws are and who and how they affect the community um, as a whole. Right. I think it's very interesting because it makes us have to start figuring out who to point fingers at and um, just kind of opening our minds to the, the layered um, situations that put people in, in, in these spots, you know. But I definitely think that this is a, a turn in the right direction because it is now making us look at um, what some people deem as such a negative thing to something that other people can look at as people's personal choice. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I didn't know this, that um, it looks like the DA already had been like, it'd been common for them to, instead of prosecuting sex workers, to send them to counseling sessions. 
Um, I think it's a very cool move that they're making that voluntary counseling now, because again, just like you said, to like make it like a, along those lines, if you have forced counseling for this, it really still casts it in a very stigmatizing light, you know, where it's like, well, you're a sex worker. So obviously you need um, this external help, even right. though you may or may not be asking for that help. And so to make it voluntary, I think is a very cool move too. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of times when we review these cases or these uh, situations where laws are changing and the semantics uh, really make such a big difference in our own interpretation and exactly how we're affected by it. Because I think that, you know, if we weren't in this moment talking about these things, there would never really be conversation of of how these laws were made to put people in, in these fucked up ass positions. You know, it's kind of one of those things that happen historically and everybody just kinds, kinds of accepts it unless they do some digging. But when you really break it down to the semantics of who and what are involved, you really see the layered effect of how people end up in situations, whether they choose it or not. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many layers to this. It really does show there's so many things that in this system, there's this illusion of there being these rules that apply to everyone, but it's so much of it is just up to individual discretion and like all these individual players within the system. Like if they feel like throwing the book at you, if they feel like suggesting this or that, and that can completely change the trajectory of your life. Or in some cases it could end up meaning your life. It could end your life. So, I mean, it's good that, you know, more of them are making this decision and that now, you know, you can't be forced to do counseling. Um, it's definitely a step in the right direction. I hope we continue going into that direction. So, yeah, between this and the weed law change, that's, you know, good news. Less reasons for cops to harass people or less, like, opportunities for somebody's life to be derailed for something that's not really anybody else's business. And less judgment for us all. So definitely um, something to look forward to. Thank you so much, Emily. That was a great story and a great way to kick off the show with some good news. I like that. I like that change. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, we needed that. So we're going to go ahead and kick off the music for today's episode. I got some great throwback tracks. And this one, I think you'll love it. It's from the Pointer Sisters and it's called Yes, We Can. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now I am up next with our national news segment. So uh, pieces of this story were drawn from an article from the Seattle Times uh, titled Chauvin Verdict, George Floyd, Seattle Reaction. Also from a story from NPR.org, Trials Over the Killing of George Floyd. And finally, another one from NPR, Makia Bryant's Police Identify Officer Who Shot the Teen and Released Video Fitted video footage on tuesday the racially diverse jury anonymous and sequestered from the outside world delivered deliberations in the Derek chauvin murder trial as lawmakers and fellow citizens alike delivered their own opinions about this case that triggered protests scattered violence and a reckoning over the u.s and the world concerning racism and police brutality former minneapolis police officer Derek chauvin has been found guilty on all counts there were three of them uh, third-degree murder, second-degree manslaughter, and uh, second-degree murder. The judge asked each juror in the verdict if the verdict was correct, thanked them, and dismissed them. Quote, I have to thank you on behalf of the people of the state of Minnesota, not for your jury service, but heavy-duty jury service, end quote. Hempton County Judge Peter Cahill said. He revoked bail and told Chauvin to report back in eight weeks for sentencing. Chauvin, silent and wearing a gray suit and a light blue surgical mask, was handcuffed and taken into custody. In a striking repudiation of Chauvin's actions, 10 of his former colleagues at the Minneapolis Police Department also testified against him during the trial. The trial and the verdict have renewed calls for structural changes to policing, both around the U.S. and in the Twin Cities region, where the funeral of Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man shot by police while resisting arrest as the Chauvin trial was underway, is taking, was taking place. A wide-ranging police reform bill bearing George Floyd's name passed in the U.S. House of Representatives last month. For federal law enforcement officers, it would ban chokeholds, no-knock warrants, and racial and religious profiling and put an end to qualified immunity. The bill would also encourage states to follow suit by making those bans a condition of federal aid. Even as many states passed reform legislation last summer, including in Minneapolis, police reform remains a complicated endeavor due to the decentralized nature of law enforcement in the U.S., There are more than 18,000 independent law enforcement agencies, some with thousands of sworn officers and many more with just a handful. The U.S. Department of Justice announced on Wednesday that it will investigate possible patterns of discrimination and excessive force in the Minneapolis Police Department. But just as the verdict was being announced in this trial, police shot and killed a teenage girl Tuesday afternoon in Columbus, Ohio. Mykia Bryant died after calling 911 to ask for police to come help protect her from a group of other girls who had threatened violence. This is what her family says. State authorities are investigating her death. Video from the scene showed that Bryant was also holding a knife in the altercation. Columbus, Ohio police officer Nicholas Reardon is responsible for firing his weapon at her. Officers who responded to the scene in the residential neighborhood knew only that quote, a disturbance was going on. Columbus police released three videos from officers' worn body cameras on Wednesday, along with the audio of two 911 calls. Unlike video that was released Tuesday evening, the newly released recordings provided more prolonged look at the violence that played out almost immediately after the police arrived. The footage shows that Reardon fired several fi- fi- shots at Bryant, 
as she and a woman were struggling next to a car. In the video, Bryant is seen holding what looks to be a knife. After a quick succession of gunshots, Bryant immediately fell to the ground and the officer began to administer first aid to her. Unfortunately, she did not make it and was um, considered dead when she arrived at the hospital. So that is my recap. Um, there, the Makia Bryant story is still evolving as we are speaking about this today. Um, but yeah, uh, feedback ladies, how did you feel when you heard the verdict? I, I felt it was awesome to hear that it, I mean, it was the right verdict, right? I, I did feel, you know, I, I was immediately nervous cause I was like a verdict is not a sentence. Right. So like, I feel like we often get part of the way towards like a, you know, a police officer getting quote unquote justice in whatever form, but then it's like, Oh, but then they got the actual sentence is only a slap on the wrist. And I'm not, I'm also not aware of what like the minimum sentencing laws are involved in what's going on here. Um, but I think I, I personally am, I'm, I'm, obviously this was the best case scenario with what the options were at this time, but I'm also, you know, still reserving excitement for when he actually gets like a sentence passed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. I was very, I didn't have any react. Like I wasn't watching the trial. Uh, I know a lot of people were watching every minute. And so I was working when it came down and other people I was working with, um, started making like dropping emojis and stuff in the group chat. And the way I see it is I think that it was a way of giving the appearance of justice, like in this individual case, as if to say the system works or it can work, but ultimately, you know, this won't bring him back this person like we don't know if he's going to get off on appeal if he does go to prison what does that solve it's not going to deter other officers from doing the same thing because in preparation for a verdict that I think they thought would be guilty you know there was all this preparation like (laughs) way more than what you saw for January 6th like we have to prepare for people you know being happy that this happened or whatever like I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I don't feel any sense of relief or happiness at all about it, really. I'm just, if the people that, you know, loved him, or like his family, if they feel like this was the best situation for them, like, I'm, of, of course, like, I'm happy they got the outcome that they wanted. But for myself, like, I don't see it as being like a watershed moment or like, oh, this is real change. Like, I didn't feel that way at all. Yeah, very interesting um, reactions from both of you. I had mixed emotions, actually. I was somewhat relieved only just because, you know, all he did get convicted of all three counts. You know, I feel like if it was anything less than that, it would have been some bullshit anyway. So I am happy that that happened and grateful that, you know, um, the Crump team went about it the way they did, right? Because a lot of these cases, as I, I said once before when I reported on this, the semantics of what these charges are kind of um, predetermined what we can expect. So they chose the right charges. 
is one thing to make sure that a conviction was possible. However, I just want to do a quick shout out to the jury because the jury selection process for this case, um, yeah, it had a lot of ups and downs. You know, people could not, there were people that went on record saying that they could not, um, you know, be objective about their emotions because watching the footage just put them in a space and it was just overwhelming for anyone to be able to deliberate in this case from an objective standpoint. Uh, so just, just a shout out to that. Like, you know, um, when you serve jury duty, it's not the best thing to do, but in this case, this jury was a diverse group of people. Obviously they went through way more than a lot of juries do, um, in a case that was global, Okay, it had a global impact, so there was a lot of pressure there. I'm not sure if I could have done it objectively. Just, you know, really want to say that. But at the end of the day, you know, this eight weeks, anything can happen. You know, the history of someone waiting for sentencing for eight weeks sometimes ends in suicide, sometimes ends in appeal, sometimes ends in uh, other violence that happens that, you know, makes this person move to a safer facility or, you know, shortens or uh, takes away the depth of, um, what they're experiencing in this waiting moment. So yeah, I'm, I'm on the fence about that too. But the sentencing will be, if will be where we see if real justice was served. Because if this dude gets anything less than like 15, 20 years, which is not even enough for any man's life, okay? But it's a real sentence, which I don't feel confident that it's going to be that. He is, you know, one of the blue guys and they protect their own. So we will see what happens. But I feel like, you know, having a conviction in this and having this whole thing happen, it is a, you know, it's an American way of saving face. It's a way for them to smooth over these uh, transitional moments, if you will, so that, so that, you know, all hell don't break loose again. Because if it was anything other than that, it fucking would have been all hell breaking loose all over the world again. This is what we do know. Um, so, at you know, I, I'm still kind of on the fence. I'm very emotional about the story. Obviously I didn't watch the trial fully, but as, as I said before, my stepdad was watching it and he's an older man who's seen a lot in life. So I was happy for him that he at least got some level of relief, but there's still so much to see and so much to do. And which brings me to my next point about Makia Bryant. This is um complicated, but not really. Do you guys, do you ladies want to um, share some feedback or what you think about this Makia Bryant situation? I mean, I didn't think it was complicated. Like, I thought a lot of people were blaming her for what happened. People are calling her all types of things, like she wasn't a child. You know, I don't care if she had a machete in her hand. You know, these men, especially, you know, knowing that they did it when it happened, like right when the verdict in the Chauvin case had just come out or was in the process of coming out, there were all this footage of officers standing around taunting protesters after they shot this child multiple times, chanting like Blue Lives Matter, which is a fascist chant. I don't think it's complex. I think it's very cut and dry. I know those grown men or grown men and women on the force have been in bar fights. They've been in altercations with people and you know how to knock someone over or to come up from behind and hold them. There was no reason to shoot that child. And I really think it's disgusting the way some of the same people that will mobilize behind, you know, let's say a man that is taken out violently by the police. But when it's a girl, when it's a black girl or a black woman, all of a sudden it's, oh, I don't know. She did. She was in foster care. She was. 
they were fighting. What would have like, please, like right? They always try to pay here. some other shit. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. They do definitely. They go for that, right? Like trying to make us out to be beasts that somewhat deserve this treatment, which is the the most awful thing. It's so do. sad. Like she could have been my cousin. Like she was a baby, sixteen, and it was like grown women old. trying to fight her. And it's it's always the what always gets me too, just like you said, is when they try and call like a child an adult, which it's and it's it, but it's always the opposite when it's like you know this twenty year old college kid who's gonna is being like charged with rape. He's like, oh, he's got his whole life ahead of him. Like, don't you know? Don't don't call, like find him guilty because he's gonna do all this other stuff. And it's just like the like, opposite, right? <laughs> right, and it's the opposite. Obvious, it's when it's like. A, a, bl- a black child often right like I, I saw something about like they called like a 13 year old like a man in like one headline or something and I don't have specifics on that so apologies but like stuff like that is like a very frequent um m- manipulation of language to to structure a narrative in like a really subtle way right like you're trying to get like just like you said this pr- somehow imply that this was this was a child who deserved to be killed for whatever reason. Um, and it's it's very upsetting. Yeah. You know, something about else about this, you know, if she was in the street with a fucking knife, she felt like her life was at danger. Whatever she was going through caused her to go to that level of rage. She was the one that called the fucking police. That's the craziest shit, right? She called them for protection and ended up having to protect herself and then died. Like, let's call a spade a spade here. This girl was 16 years old. She had a lot of fucking shit going on if she in the street fighting women with knives, whoever they were. And if you look at the footage, it was a lot of violence going on. There was a man like stomping somebody else out. Like this was a whole thing. And, you know, I hate that we don't really have the full breakdown of what was happening when she called and why she called and like how she even got in this situation. But I seen a couple of posts today of her like TikTok. She's like, you know, she's just a teenage girl on there, like doing her hair and working her curls and making TikToks. And, you know, this, this was a child. My thing is, why the fuck is it always the first thing to kill somebody? You didn't even try to deescalate. They don't even have footage of him trying to approach her, like walk up closer and have a conversation or, or see why she has a knife out. The first thing you do is shoot to kill. You know, high school teachers have bartenders, bouncers have broken up fights without killing somebody. There was no attempt. You know, your whole job is allegedly to protect and serve people, and you don't know how to do that. It was because she was a black girl. I, a lot of people were saying very ugly things about her because of her size. From what I read about this, her aunt was saying that she was afraid because there were people in the foster house that she was in or like in the neighborhood that were threatening her. And so she was scared for herself. And like she called the police and she had called other people like for help. And instead of showing up and helping, they just start shooting. And it's just, there's no, how many mass shootings have we had recently? too many to count like they blur they blur the dates like in my head I cannot keep them straight 
unless those people decide that they're going to kill themselves, a lot of them get taken alive, but you don't know how to break up a literal fight when someone has a manual weapon in their hands and it's several of you. I'll never believe it. And anyone that's like justifying it, like I, I'm, you can kiss my ass. Like it's really inexcusable. She wasn't forming a threat to the fucking officer, which is what they say normally when they do this shit. She wasn't coming at you with no fucking knife. She wasn't doing that. You know, it wasn't like she was out here charging you in the streets, which is how you justify your, your dumbass behavior from the jump in any other situation. But I hate the fact that you didn't even attempt to tase her. You didn't attempt to walk up and deescalate. Like you didn't attempt to do anything. You weren't threatened by this little girl. You were not. And that is the only reason that you can justify pulling your fucking gun. So get it, get it right. You know what I'm saying? Like, just fucking stop the the bullshit. Like, if you feel like that's your first form of defense when you're supposed to come and de-escalate, she couldn't de-escalate for herself. Apparently, she felt threatened if she had a fucking knife. Why weren't you trying to figure out the people that she had the knife against? Why weren't you trying to figure that shit out? Why did you go straight to go murder somebody that wasn't even a fucking threat to you? I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm sorry. I'm over it. Her I'm- aunt was her aunt was saying like the police were laughing at her when she was confronting them about what happened to her niece. Like they were laughing in her face. I'm not I would not be surprised at all. And I believe that it was likely like a revenge thing to do because of this chauvin shit. Exactly. Because they like to show who's really in charge. At the end of the day, they're going to still do what they want to do. You know, and unfortunately, you have a lot of regular people falling for the propaganda, you know, adultifying this child. And it's it's just so heartbreaking. It, it makes me so sick and sad on the inside because she was being failed on so many levels. Like, we don't know yeah. why she was taken from her family. You know, we don't know why it was grown musty ass women trying to buck up and fight with a 15 16 year old child to where she felt scared and then she's trying to defend herself she's trying to get help and this is what happens it's just so sad it's really i don't even know what to say anymore we got a long way to go don't think for one second because this man got a conviction that that we moving forward we got a lot of fucking dirt to uncover and just see that there is retaliation you know don't be fooled in thinking that that everything's all good there will be retaliation when we have these moments you think what you want to but at the end of the day this is a young girl who needed help and it's that she got murdered yeah we gonna go ahead and take a music break because i'm about to go off all right, the next song is from Sade. This is Soldier Love. Stay tuned. I've lost the use of my heart.
I'm a soldier love objections to the role in Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we will have Jasmine with our international news segment. Um, This week, this is um, a story that's been developing for quite some time, actually, um, but it's had some disturbing new developments. So I'm going to read an article that was post that was published in the Washington Post on April the 21st, the author's name is Rakaya Diallo, R-O-K-H-A-Y-A Diallo. And it's in the global opinion section and says, France's latest vote to ban hijabs shows how far it will go to exclude Muslim women. And um, the author writes, France's Senate voted to ban children under the age of 18 and mothers who accompanied them on school trips from wearing the hijab and to ban burkinis in swimming pools. So 
these provisions came as amendments to a bill that was previously voted on by the National Assembly and condemned by major French human rights organizations as targeting Muslims and violating human rights. Despite the outcry, the right-wing right senators of the party Les Républicains, or the Republicans, decided to toughen the initial law. The new version of the law creates new reasons to survey Muslim citizens and restricts their freedom of religion in a way that has never been seen before. While the secular law in place bans hijabs in schools and for civil servants only, the Senate decided to ban religious signs for parents who take part in extracurricular activities, which basically means the exclusion of Muslim hijab-wearing mothers from school life. Lawmakers also decided to forbid burkinis and swimming pools and to exclude any person wearing religious signs from taking part in a sporting event or a competition hosted by a federation or sport association. On the provision that prohibits anyone under 18 from wearing a veil in the public sphere to, quote, to prevent, quote, the wearing by minors of any outfit that would mean the inferiorization of women, one politician who supported the point said that it is not up to the parents to impose dogmas on children. But this contradicts international human rights standards, which guarantee the liberty of parents and, when applicable, legal guardians to ensure the religious and moral education of their children in conformity with their own convictions. This is all the more disturbing because the lawmakers recently set the age of sexual consent at 15. Um, so French women soon created a French hashtag uh, that's called Patusha Mon Hijab to protest the discriminatory and freedom-destroying law, as one woman wrote. There's been more than 70,000 tweets that pushed for Muslim women to be considered fully human and demanded that lawmakers stop making decisions on their behalf. In 1989, girls were excluded from middle school for wearing headscarves. Since then, France has singled itself out for an incredible number of controversies over Muslim women daring to, be to appear covered in public. Women have been attacked and dismissed for leading a student union, being nannies, being part of a television singing contest, running for office, participating in a news show, attending a public hearing, volunteering in a charity, wearing a long skirt at school, applying for a job, being provided adequate sporting equipment, and in so many other situations. This article would not be able to name all the times when Muslim women's choices have been violently debated without them. So, I mean, there, this decision is... This decision is not um, completely final. Um, the article goes on to say the provisions received unfavorable opinions from the current government and the law commission and French President Emmanuel Macron's majority party in the National Assembly will probably not vote for them. But the fact that they have been approved by one of the two legislative chambers says a lot about how far lawmakers are ready to go to erase Muslim women from the public sphere. The debate taking place without the participation of the main parties concerned itself normalizes the exclusion of the community. 
uh, and the author ends it by saying, Muslim women are reclaiming their freedom over their bodies, pretending to save them from oppression while banning them from activities is nothing more than denying them agency. Um, so again, if you can read the full um, opinion piece, this was an abridged uh, rereading of it at the Washington Post, Rakaya Diallo, France's latest vote to ban hijab shows how far it will go to exclude Muslim women. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's been getting enough attention, or at least not in the U.S. I know we have a lot of shit going on ourselves, but it's it's this rising like authoritarian, in my opinion, streak that we see in so many countries is really disturbing. This is such blatant prejudice. I almost can't take it. Like, I feel like, you know, first of all, we are in Ramadan season in this moment. And I was actually today having a dialogue with one of my coworkers um, who, you know, has had her hair covered for the past couple of weeks and why she doesn't necessarily identify um, as Muslim. I'm aware that she celebrates this holiday. And, and it brought to my mind today that I was, I was acknowledging it just, you know, considering how she's doing, but the same context is why is it that she doesn't maybe not feel comfortable sharing, sharing her religious beliefs? Um, the fact that this is even up for debate is awful. Okay. France has a history of coming across as such a progressive place, but yet these backwards ass policies really show you where they're at. And it's unfortunate that they claim to save, you know, women, um, from all types of different backgrounds uh, for, you know, different prejudices and things that they may go through. And then they bring them here and dehumanize them by not allowing them to practice their religion. One of the things that stood out to me really strongly was the claim from, and I think the authoritarian is a really great word to apply here, Jasmine, from the Republicans or whatever in France who um, were saying that the that it's not like the parents shouldn't impose, you know, these religious things on their children or whatever. And it just, I had this big wave of a flashback to actually Hebrew school when I was going and when we were talking about like Hitler and the Holocaust. And one of the biggest uh, red flags to put it minorly, I guess, was the way like Hitler would say, like, I'm more important than the family unit, right? Like I'm more important than the parents and, and, for the children to follow and like Hitler youth and all that. And it's just this big wave of like, anytime an authority figure like tries to impose on the family unit. And of course, you know, as a rule, I should say, as a say, and like, especially like a blanket statement for a certain minority group. Um, it's really scary. And it, you know, it's obvious. It's just, it's fucked up on many levels, but that like really stood out to me for sure. Yeah, and I don't. I want to make sure that um, the audience understands that Republicans in France has a very different meaning mm-hmm. from what we say here. Like they do, they have this concept in France of like um, the universal citizen. Like for example, when you apply for jobs, like you don't have questions like what is your race um, and things like that. It. it, it there's this very, in my opinion, flawed way of looking at things um, or like the official government line is that because we won't acknowledge these differences and we basically try to make it so that 
evidence of the differences don't exist, we therefore don't have a problem with racism or Islamophobia and things like that. And it's just not the case. Yeah, you know, it's... there's there's many cases of like, for example, it's common practice where that you put your photograph on your resume when you're applying for a job. Or even if you don't do that, like they can discriminate based on the way your name sounds. So yeah, maybe you're not checking a box, but if these attitudes are out there that people from certain backgrounds are inherently dangerous or don't belong, this is just going to make it worse. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I know, I know France doesn't have the same like and in our, like I think in the American view of France, it's not the same stigma related to race in the same way. Obviously, it's a different country with a different history. Um, it's I think we've talked about multiple times on the show that there's a huge Islamophobia issue there, just like in the story today. And um, there's also it's also like notorious in the Jewish community for being in like a, a hard place to live and be Jewish. Um, so a big anti-Semitism issue as well. So it's definitely it's far from. Um, you know, a bastion of tolerance, if that's how they're trying to, um, you know, just like, uh, just like a lot of places in the world, but it, it is far from a perfect society in that sense. Yeah, and one, you know, the saddest part is one of the beauties of France, you know, I've, I've frequented the country, I'm an artist, you know, I, I like the whole uh, essence of what it's supposed to be in, in an artistic realm, and many other things there's such an eclectic group of people in that country. Um, and, you know, while it may not be black and white, the ethnicities stand out. Um, in my experience, you know, being able to go to different regions of a, a, a city and experience the entire world was a benefit to me. I felt welcomed in that way. But then you have these shadows, right? You have these moments where I have conversations with women who have moved there you know, um, from other countries and they talk about the challenges they face with trying to get their kids medical care and, and get into the school system. Um, you know, being an immigrant in France is difficult. So it's a real sort of um, passive aggressive sort of uh, approach to women and women's rights and also ethnicity in this country. And I don't want anyone to get it fooled. Wow. It's great for us to celebrate art and be able to be in a place where we feel free to be ourselves. These undercurrent tones of, is it okay for you to be yourself? Really give me a vibe of, of um, it, what's the word I'm looking for. I just really feel like they don't practice what they preach and they paint this vision that people will be valued when all the time there are these currents underneath everything else that are really manipulating society and how people move and maneuver. Um, so shame on you for being fake and a manipulator of people's life experiences in the wrong way when you have such an opportunity to make a big difference. Yeah, like I'll definitely um, keep you updated because it hasn't officially become law and I'm hoping that it doesn't make it, but it is disturbing to see that it's gotten this far. You know, it's like all this is going to do is give more people, make them feel emboldened to attack women that they see, women and girls. How do you know who's over or under 18 to be questioning whether or not they're allowed to be covering their hair? Like the whole idea of policing that it's, 
there's no way that you can make that make sense. Like, like nothing. It's just, it's, it's, it's Islamophobic. It's xenophobic. It's not reckoning with their colonial past and their colonial history appropriately and trying to make people feel like they're perpetual others. And, you know, I'm just, I'm hoping that it does fail and it doesn't um, become the official law because it's just, you're no better than a place that makes it where you must do it or else you get in trouble. You know, you're still policing somebody's body when you're telling them to take something off or to not cover as if you're forcing them to cover up. Very good point. Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. And Emily, please grace us with the good news. So this is, it's it's good news with like a tinge of like, okay, climate stuff, because it is Earth Day after all. But um, so in honor of Earth Day, um, this this good news story for the week is courtesy of the New York Times article by uh, Colin Moynihan titled, The Climate Clock Now Ticks with a Tinge of Optimism. Quote, a hint of optimism has been added to the climate clock, the set of decreasing numbers on the facade of a building in New York's Union Square that was conceived by two artists and activists to communicate the urgency of curbing carbon emissions. Seven months ago, the artists Andrew Boyd and Gan Golan, assisted by others, redid Metronome, which was a public art project commissioned by the developers of One Union Square South and unveiled in 1999. Its clock, instead of measuring the time of day, would measure the time remaining by some counts to reduce reduce emissions and prevent some effects of global warming from becoming irreversible. About seven years, the clock's creator said. Now, though, a group of people working on the climate clock project have decided to offer a note of hope by adding to the display a second set of numbers that represents the increasing percentage of the world's energy that comes from sources like the sun and wind. Uh, right now, it's just over 12%, and that is worldwide energy, which is pretty cool. Uh, and that number comes from an Oxford University project called Our, Wor- Our World in Data. According to online information from that Oxford project, uh, as of 2019, Iceland leads the world in percentage of renewable energy for the country at 79.08%. Um, and in comparison, the U.S. is at 8.71%. So some pretty interesting numbers there for sure. Uh, So the following message was displayed as part of the Climate Clock Project. Uh, Quote, the Earth has a deadline. Let's make it a lifeline. Uh, So the number displayed on that clock will alternate between the scary countdown to climate disaster and the more hopeful renewable energy statistic. Uh, A project participant named Greg Schwedock said, quote, said that although he still regards the climate to be in a state of emergency, he was happy to help bring the renewable energy numbers to the attention of the public. It's nice to have positive climate news, he said. That's something that the environmental community can be proud of. Um, so just a little, yeah, a little drop of optimism um, to end the show with and, uh, you know, this Earth Day week. So there you go. Nice. I love when art is social justice. Like, I live in that world. That is awesome. And yeah. I'm glad to see, see that they've added a level of positivity to that clock because mm-hmm. it it's kind of like a central... Um, you know, like a centralized view of that part of town. So that's great. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've, I've seen that, you know, countdown. I actually, um, I would always look at it and never really know what the numbers are. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't seen it since it switched to the climate countdown, I think. Um, but I think, 
I just like with the good news here, it's, it is often focused on, I think, climate news because everything seems so horrifying and scary. And, and if you, I think there is the danger of being so weighed down by that fear of disaster that you, if you don't see hope, you don't act, right? If you think it's hopeless, you're not going to, but there's always, you know, we, there's still plenty of room to mitigate the effects of climate change. So I think reminding people of the, all the good that's happening is actually like a vital part of fighting it. Not, not the only vital part, but a vital part. So, yeah. That's right. Words matter. And the more we know, the better we are. So thank you so much for sharing that. So next time you're on Union Square, people look up. Okay. Look up, check it out. Make sure you uh, participate in this change. And uh, I think that's it for this week's objection to the rule. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Please continue to listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track for the day is another tribute to a fallen rapper, Black Rob. Um, I wasn't aware that he passed away, but he had some sentiments for DMX uh, while he was actually in the hospital, passing away himself in the past week. So... Uh, I don't want to call him a one-hit wonder, but this track was everything, and I know you'll remember it. So we're going to play it out. This track is Whoa, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Have a good week, everybody. When you see something ill, you know what I mean? That shit is woke. Anything ill you see is woke. Nigga have a big six at the curb, that's woke. Especially if he got the fully equipped kid on it, it's woke. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yo, I had this bad bitch in town, she was woke. Had me fucked up in the head, I mean. Bought the fish, diamonds, and pearls, I mean. Should have seen them shit shining on the wrist. Now money ain't a problem, see my dough is like. Hold out my bankroll on y'all niggas like. Lost the boots, went from two tenth like. Faggot wanna peep my blueprints, I'm like. Had to hit the brakes on y'all niggas like Whoa. Niggas getting both on my block like Whoa. Coming home within a half an hour like Front like they had the manpower like Whoa. More or less, more so I rip guitar so I live the fast life Come through in the park slow like Whoa. My niggas like dough, like dro, nitro, nitro